I am Michael Crawford from The Howard University. I'm also the founder and executive director of Howard University's 1867 Health Innovations Project, where we are looking for innovative solutions to address longstanding health challenges. This is 21st Century Health. Digital health is paving the way for critical health access, and health data is helping inform how we develop new solutions to enhance patient outcomes and access. These innovations are changing lives. So the combining of technology and wellness care is revolutionizing the healthcare industry from providing virtual support for physical and mental health care and data collection anytime to anyone from anywhere. Applied and adopted evenly and historically free or free of historic biases, these digital tools can give providers that 360 degree view of one's health care status empower patients with previously unprecedented control over their individual health. This could lead to better informed decisions, earlier diagnoses, greater access, because these tools allow care to be realized from any place at any time over multiple devices of your choice. It will allow for more personalization or customization Increase quality of care, which is essential, reduce cost, which is a must, and fewer inefficiencies, which should be our North Star. That was Minyoung Clyburn, the former commissioner of the Federal Communications Commission. These innovations have the power to change health outcomes for individuals and communities across the United States. But we have a dilemma. Innovations can make a positive impact but only if they reach the people and communities who need them the most. Does our nation have the infrastructure to support and sustain these innovations to ensure all communities benefit, especially the most vulnerable? I'm following up with Min Young Clyburn. Min Young, as a former commissioner of the FCC, you have seen the evolution of technology and how it affects communities. You have also witnessed incredible innovations in digital health. But digital health faces a big challenge when it comes to infrastructure. Can you tell me, what are some of the limitations of digital health when it comes to infrastructure in our current healthcare landscape? Access. (laughs) It's the A word, you know, access. And it's the second A word, affordability. So we talk about um, the promise of all of these technologies and the promise of being connected. But what we don't hover over enough is the reality of these disconnects, these unevennesses that we have in our society. When it comes to basic plans, your mobile plan is not the same as mine. I guarantee you, because it depends on when we came on the system, uh, what type of device we have, all of the above, and what you can afford. So there's an unevenness there. It depends on where you live in this country. And it's not just a rural divide. We like to point to the rural divide. Proportionally, it is significant. You've got 22.3% of Americans in rural areas and 27 point, almost 30% of Americans on tribal lands that they lack that basic access to broadband, particularly when it comes to speed, compared to 1.5% of Americans in urban areas. But you've got some urban areas. That 1.5% is a large number. And numerically, it's larger than the rural areas. Proportionally not, but numerically it is. 
So when you talk about all of this unevenness when it comes to access to care, when it comes, let me just put it out there. These are not my words, but others, redlining charges, that there are some communities that get, have robust uh, infrastructure and others that have nothing. When it comes to maybe different governments approving or not approving or going slow on applications and green lighting projects, you got all of those things that make for an unevenness when it comes to access and when it comes to a broadband availability. I think you alluded to this regarding broadband, but I want to ask the question, what is the state of broadband in the U.S.? Uneven. Now, if you were to look at the numbers and compare them, if you were to look at what broadband now, uh, which is uh, you know a, a research um, arm says, 77% of us have access, access to low-price wireless broadband compared to 50% if you were to look at that uh, two years ago. And that doesn't mean continual because access could mean fiber outside my home, but that doesn't mean that I have adopted broadband or is truly available to me. And low price, a lot of people define low price as $60 or less a month. Now, if you're on fixed income, or if you have unevenness in your uh, job or economic uh, you know, flow or status, $60 a month could be a heavy lift. And I'm not talking, in most cases, robust broadband. I'm talking about very sufficient to good broadband. So you've got all of the barriers that I mentioned that might be political or environmental, but a lot of it is economics. The economics of whether you can afford something monthly And the economics for the company to provide or to uh, build that infrastructure in an area that it is perceived to be low income. So they're going to assume that you're not going to they're going to have high take rates or in an area so wide and vast that you have more corn stocks than people or more cows than people. And the monies or the business case, according to the company, does not work as well. Now, all of this is absent of any type of government intervention, but those are the classic initial barriers that contribute to that unevenness in which we see too often in too many communities, especially communities of color. There are a lot of people and companies trying to address this infrastructure challenge. And you mentioned policy and choices. I want to talk a little bit about policy for a second. What role does policy play in expanding broadband access to all communities? It could be a barrier for us to move to the next level or an incredible enhancer. Now, I'll start with the positive. So if you remember um, back in late 2020, Congress passed or created this emergency broadband benefit program, which was a short-term fix. It started up and running the first quarter of 2021 that allowed or enabled those who were eligible, low-income households, to receive a discount up to $50 a month for broadband service and certain connected devices. Later that year, uh, last year in November, we established a more permanent affordable connectivity program. And I say more permanent because it is not permanent in my eyes and the eyes of many. So that's a $14.2 billion benefit that will enable some of those same families to receive up to $30 a month. So it's a little less, 
um, of relief from that broadband bill. You've got the National Telecommunications Information Agency. A lot of people talk about the FCC, where I spent um, what seems like a professional lifetime, but the NTIA. Uh, it has six broadband programs, and people are less familiar with that agency, but I think we need to do more homework there. The largest program is called the Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Program. That's $42.45 billion that will be distributed to uh, states and their projects to support this infrastructure. They've got a digital equity grant program and a connected minority communities pilot program. And that particular program across um, MSIs or minority serving institutions, I think that's about $240 million that will be uh, distributed um, over the course of, I am assuming this year and uh, some of next year. That is how the government is helping to fuel some of this. But it's a partnership. The government can't or won't afford to do it alone. Private industry is going to ask for help where the business case will not be made. You've got nonprofits that are providing, uh, you know, some economic bandwidth or other opportunities, including to encourage innovative players that are not the usual uh, suspects or the usual companies in this Internet service provider space to take part. And of course, you have value partners who are needed to navigate this. So those are the types of things that I know have to happen. The partnerships, the usual political stickiness that we think is cute and and, and makes headlines. We need to move away from that, at least in this space, because it's costing our society heavily. It is costly for me not to be connected and have to go to a hospital or a clinic or somewhere for something that could happen online or remotely. It is costly. It is less efficient. It doesn't work well for me if I have a job that doesn't allow me to do that. But now I'm going to get sick so I will be less efficient. And then that economic burden is passed on to my employer, to my family, and so on. So it really makes sense for us to look at these digital opportunities, and to really go out of our way to make sure it is even more even and equitable to all in our society. There's a lot of discussion around 5G. People are wondering if 5G will help or hinder access to broadband. Is 5G a solution? And based on your experience, what role will 5G play in facilitating greater broadband access? Now, that's an interesting question because I used to say that too many in our space barely have 3G, and now we're talking about 5G, right? So what the heck is 5G? We keep talking about it. You know, what are we talking about when we say 5G? And why is my mobile provider claiming to have it, even though my life doesn't seem to (laughs) have changed too much when it comes to my device? So those of us who are lucky enough to have 4G or 4G LTE, which is the fourth generation of cellular networks, the promise of what they call 5G, it claims that our network speeds will be up to 100 times faster with little to no delays, lags, or gaps, that we will have greater bandwidth, more services like those wireless cars that I'm still not comfortable with. Now, that is fabulous if it's evenly deployed and made available, particularly in rural communities. It is important when we talk about digital or connected health. 
Because if I can get results faster, if I can upload and be connected to whatever that device that's monitoring and my doctor can get it in minutes if I'm having you know, some type of crisis, if we can realize or use AI to um, almost anticipate or recognize certain symptoms or certain trends that will allow for either a diagnosis or at least an awareness that didn't happen before. So all of these things are important when it comes to um, artificial intelligence and machine learning. If we are going to bridge these gaps to include something that I know that bothers you, there's an incredible, painful strain when it comes to personnel in health. And when that strain that we saw exacerbated during, you know, the most recent pandemic, when people couldn't get to the facility and nobody could see them, where they were waiting in rooms or emergency centers, literally dying in in, in emergency rooms, all of those things call out for a 5G solution. So it's not just trying to keep up with other countries that are moving ahead. It is really trying to identify the deficiencies that we do have particularly with healthcare providers, I think it is an incredible necessity, particularly for those communities in an analog position that are not getting the type of outcomes, treatments, and attention that they deserve. 5G presents a unique solution, but like Minyun said, it has to be deployed evenly. I spoke with someone else about the potential in using 5G to expand access to underserved communities, Dr. David Rue. Dr. Rue is the chief medical officer of Microsoft, and he has seen the evolution of 5G. When we think of 5G, we just think of it more in terms of, you know, it's going to enhance these capabilities that we already have. But when we look at specifically in communities of color who don't have reliable broadband access, 5G may represent that unique opportunity for us to be able to enable them to receive care through the internet that oftentimes requires that higher level of broadband width. And this uh, will allow us to be able to do things such as not only telehealth visits, but remote patient monitoring, and, and a lot of other things that we all recognize are essential components of a digital health strategy uh, that can be applied through multiple different areas. And, you know, when we think about how, you know, where, where these opportunities lie, certainly rural, but also urban, a lot of what we're talking about are individuals that may have access, but they don't have, they're not able to afford it. Almost everyone has a phone. You know, I think like close to 80% of people have a smartphone and that may end up becoming one of the ways that we can democratize the healthcare through the 5G networks. I am following up with Dr. Rue because I'm curious if 5G is the only solution to expanding broadband access. What else needs to happen from an infrastructure perspective to make broadband accessible to all? Dr. Rue, I first want to ask, in your experience, how have you seen a lack of internet access affect people's health outcomes? One out of five Americans don't have access to affordable broadband, and it it disproportionately impacts individuals of color, those that are living in rural populations. Uh, And so what we find is that this impacts a good number of people, and there's been a significant amount of effort to change that paradigm. Because, you know, during the pandemic, uh, one of the things that we saw was 
that one of the major risk factors for death or mortality during COVID-19 was lack of internet access. And this was, you know, whether it was even broadband, dial-up, or cellular. So it's incredible that this was one of the independent risk factors for death. So we know that it has a huge impact on clinical outcomes. And the fact that one out of five are not getting, you know, access to this is, is something that needs to be fixed. So the U.S. government, particularly under the Biden-Harris administration, has launched the Internet for All initiative, which is essentially a, a 42 0.45 billion broadband access program, which is allowing that information to flow to the states so that they can then apply it to their different areas. What other infrastructure is required to ensure greater broadband access for all communities? Well, one of the things that we did at Microsoft that has been extremely helpful in helping us to understand the problem was we initiated the Airband Initiative about close to about five years ago. And this was uh, an initiative to bring access to affordable broadband to everyone across the world. And, and what we learned in that process was that the core element of how we address this access to broadband issue is at the local level. Understanding what resources and capabilities do individuals have access to that would allow them to be able to then basically gain access to the internet. And that was uh, something that we realized would require a level of public-private partnership that oftentimes doesn't exist, a certain level of incentives for organizations to be able to invest in these areas, and, and as well as training. And so what we're realizing is that it's very local. It's hyper-local. We need to understand what are the different ways that we can impact. So I'll give you a few examples. One of them, in some cases, is just simply access to like MiFi devices. And so giving individuals access to these MiFi devices can help provide that broadband access. Other places, it's we have no infrastructure to even have access to any of that. So maybe what we have to do is we have to rely on, on, on the 5G networks that are now being set up. So rather than it being broadband access, well, this leverage the cellular networks. Let's start looking at ways that we can uh, perhaps even use things such as TV white space in which case we would need a new device that would be able to you know, access that. And so there's a lot of different strategies, all of which with different players, very local and different challenges. But what we found is that by working together at the local level with support, oftentimes from the federal government through funding, we are able to overcome those barriers. There's been a lot of talk about data plans related to cell phones. How will the mobile phone and data plan segment evolve to accommodate a growing digital health ecosystem? I think we're going to start seeing that there's an appreciation that everyone is in a slightly different, I'll say, starting point. Some of these you know, plans are, are designed for you know, consumers that can afford to utilize data at a higher level and you, you pay certain amounts. But we are also recognizing that there are different segments of the population for whom uh, they need different plans. Uh, seniors, you know, we've seen, we started to see plans that are specifically designed around senior needs, uh, but will in all likelihood start recognizing that there are more segmentations, you know, specifically as we look at underserved populations, vulnerable populations, and, and we'll probably see continued segmentation that allows us to be able to provide plans that meet the needs of all these individuals. I want to bring in the topic of digital literacy. It is a critical component of optimizing the use of digital solutions. 
What role will digital literacy play in expanding access to healthcare as well as new digital solutions? Well, digital literacy is, <laughs> once you actually gain access to the, uh, the affordable broadband, you have to know how to use it. And there are so many individuals, whether it be just because of lack of experience with technologies or perhaps advancing age or maybe even language that need to be able to you know, understand how to use this. And what we found is that um, there's a certain amount of training that needs to occur and support, oftentimes done by individuals living in communities or, or working in co for community organizations like libraries or YMCAs. And, and, and these are individuals that can provide the education, the training and support that will allow for individuals that don't have understanding and that digital literacy to be able to use the tools, everything from just being able to access the internet to be able to you know, do telehealth visits. Customer support is incredibly important for digital, naive populations. How will this segment evolve to accommodate the needs of patients, families, and communities? That's a great question because largely what we have seen is that individuals will you know, maybe run into a barrier and they'll need to have someone who can help fix that. And that customer so support has to be geared towards the individuals with special needs. You know, we talk about seniors, you know, digitally naive populations, where I'll give you an example of one of the things when we started rolling out with, and this is some of the work that I did many years ago with Kaiser Permanente, a program to virtualize cardiac rehabilitation. Much of our emphasis was on putting the cardiac rehab program on the smartwatch and then figuring out ways that we can enable the healthcare provider to you know, essentially become better connected and, and figure out those workflows on the back end. But one of the most essential elements to the success of this program was the development of a tier one, two, three customer support process so that we could address issues that related to, hey, I, I can't get my device to work or, you know, how do you turn it on to things such as the data says this, I'm concerned about this, or what should I do about this? And, and all those levels of support have to be built in if we intend to roll out digital health more broadly, because those are the ways that people will uh, decide whether or not they can use this or not. And who are important stakeholders to this process? Well, certainly the technology companies. And the, when they talk about technology, it's the telecom providers. But we also have stakeholders that are key from the policy perspective, government, at the federal, state, local levels. We're talking about the individuals, the voice of the customer, the advocacy groups for patients and consumers, really understanding their needs and trying to make sure that it's going to be fair, equitable for all people. And, and that's something that I think we're now starting to realize that technology can do so many great things. But if we don't apply the lens of health equity to this, we may leave uh, individuals behind, in particular those that are underserved and vulnerable. Dr. Rue mentioned some important stakeholders who have a role in developing a more accessible broadband infrastructure. I wanted to speak with one of those stakeholders, a company well-known in the internet service provider industry. Broderick Johnson is the Executive Vice President of Public Policy and Digital Equity at Comcast. He is also the former White House Cabinet Secretary. I want to know what strategies Comcast are using to expand broadband for communities, especially the most vulnerable. Broadwick, before we get into strategies, can you tell us how is Comcast viewing this issue and why is it important? 
Researchers have called digital literacy and internet connectivity the, quote, super social determinants of health because they address all other social determinants of health as well. You know, one of my idols, the late Congressman John Lewis, the idol of so many of us, said this about the internet. He said, access to the internet is the civil rights issue of the 21st century. Now, Congressman Lewis also was a strong advocate for health equity. So internet access and adoption, which we'll talk about uh, later, are also inextricably linked with health equity. Nearly seven in 10 people turn to the internet first when looking for health information. And that's probably about 100% for everyone who's listening to this podcast. So what we need to do as a society, though, is to help get more people online so they can access that information. Health equity is about everyone having access to the opportunity to be as healthy as possible, then it is vital to ensure that everyone has the tools necessary to facilitate good health. And that's through digital equity, which is access, adoption, and digital literacy all put together to make sure that we can truly achieve digital equity and digital equity to bring about health equity. Digital equity is not only a civil rights issue, it's a health equity issue as well. Can you tell me more about the work that you're doing at Comcast to address digital equity? Yes. So I I joined Comcast not much more than a year ago, actually, uh, in several capacities. And one of those capacities was to lead up our our efforts on digital equity, being able to achieve uh, digital equity to close the digital divide across the United States. And so the work that I do, along with with great colleagues across the entire uh, company, is to work especially on these adoption issues, to go into communities across the United States, to give, uh, give speeches, to appear on panels, and most importantly, to work with community groups and to work with local government officials to help bring awareness to the fact that broadband, uh, in fact, is available. And because of uh, the American Connectivity Program, the most recently passed federal legislation to address this issue, billion is now available to make sure that up to 48 million Americans can get online for free. But awareness is a big problem. You know, we have barriers to adoption. Awareness is a big problem. Distrust of government, distrust of of, uh, private institutions, of business is another, another barrier. A lack of digital skills and digital skills training so that when people have access and when people have a device, there's still a lot of, of uncertainty, a lack of knowledge about how to use those devices to better uh, life outcomes, including health uh, outcomes, of course. And finally, the issue of relevance. You know, there are many people who, when they think about whether or not they need to be online, uh, wonder whether it really will make a difference in their lives with regard to education or job skills training or their own health care or uh, addressing their other needs. And so my work really with Comcast, and it's really in the DNA of the company, is to make sure that we can work to help empower people to get online and to change their lives across the country. You mentioned awareness is a challenge in terms of broadband adoption. Are there any specific examples that you could provide of organizations that are leading the way in expanding awareness of broadband and broadband adoption? Oh, yes, increasingly. And this is what 
among many things, really excites me about the work that, that I, I get to do at Comcast and that my colleagues get to do. There's growing awareness and growing support for what we refer to as, uh, as digital navigators, and, and some people call them digital ambassadors. And these are people who, you know, based on other experiences, perhaps having to do with signing people up for vaccines or getting people signed up for the ACA or getting people signed up for SNAP benefits. But navigators, digital navigators, uh, in the sense of broadband, are, are individuals. Uh, they can be volunteers. They could be uh, paid staffers who work for community-based organizations um, that go out into communities whether it's at libraries or knocking on doors or in, in other ways, connecting to people in their communities. And it's very important, it's been found that these are people to be very effective. These are people who have to be trusted by the folks that they are, are engaging with or meeting with in, the, in their communities. And I'll give you some examples. So Comcast, we are supporting increasing number of digital navigator organizations. I was recently in Detroit and in, in this trip that I took in, in the summer to Detroit, it was to announce three digital navigator grants to organizations based in Detroit that are helping connect people to the Internet and helping people with digital literacy skills, getting devices and the like. So one of those organizations is an organization called the St. Patrick's Senior Center. It's one run by this incredible woman by the name of uh, Satrice Betts-Coleman. And Ms. Coleman understands the importance of internet connection to the people, to the elderly people who come through her center every day. And during the pandemic, it was especially important, of course, to help those folks who would otherwise be coming to her center stay connected through the internet. And so the grant that we made to her organization was to help with even further strengthening the program that she has around digital navigation and also was able to provide some laptops to that organization as well. And it's just wonderful. And in her own life, internet connection has been so important for she and her family. She has two daughters who are um, college and graduate school educated. And it was their internet connection that kept them from losing any progress in their path. So that's just one of so many examples I'll be going out across the country over the next several months meeting with people and, and organizations that are doing the same kind of work because it is so important to be able to reach people, but also to connect with people who are trusted in the communities in which they work. You mentioned this incredible program around digital navigators. Are there any other specific examples of programs that you believe are showing promise in addressing health equity issues and improving health outcomes. For instance, Comcast lift zones are providing critical broadband access. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, lift zones. So we made a commitment to open thousand lift zones really as the, the pandemic took hold, recognizing the need for Wi-Fi connections in many circumstances where people didn't have or don't have home-based broadband. And thinking about young people, uh, for example, but, but also families, young families, the elderly, uh, veterans. So we've opened uh, over a thousand of these uh, lift zones in communities all across the United States, providing free Wi-Fi. And that, that's part of our ongoing commitment uh, to connect low-income families to the Internet outside their homes. 
So this will continue and we will continue to add uh, even more uh, lift zones, hundreds of more lift zones in the months ahead. And let me give you sort of an anecdotal example of how lift zones are making a difference relative to healthcare. In Chicago, the Chinese American Service League, which is one of our lift zones, provides private rooms with laptops so that visitors can talk with their doctors. At that lift zone, they also get tech support and translation services as well. And we know that this is happening in other lift zones um, also. You know, many of our Internet Essentials customers, um, these are people who have uh, broadband at home, um, have talked about the importance of being online, being able to use our Internet Essentials service to help access healthcare. 82%, in fact, of our of our what we call IE or Internet Essentials customers say that that product has helped with accessing healthcare. And 29% of those customers said they use their connection to manage health or medical benefits information. Um, 22% use it for telehealth, like seeing a doctor or a nurse online. So look, the greatest way to reduce health disparities is to increase access to care and telemedicine and that is absolutely tied to being able to get people online. How do we keep making progress and having an impact to improve health outcomes by addressing digital equity and health equity? Well, we just have to stay committed to it, that's for sure. And we can't see the period of the pandemic as an emergency period that, you know, where we needed to focus resources and address issues. And then it kind of dissipates. As a company, I know we are committed to achieving digital uh, digital equity, closing the digital divide, making the digital divide no more than a crack in the society by uh, the resources that we put into it and by the, the attention that um, our employees and our programs and our products put on it. But this is also something that our society overall needs to be um, committed to, again, long-term. While we may not be in a, in a pandemic emergency anymore, we certainly are emerging from that. It's urgent, though, that we continue to focus on digital equity and get the resources out there. And government has a role, and the private sector has a role, nonprofit organizations have a role, and individuals have a role as well to spread the word to our friends and neighbors about you know, how different life is and can be when you're online or when you're not online. And so those, those stories are important to tell and the work is important though to stay committed to for the long term. And a big part of that goes to the relevance issue. And the, you know, the, the fact that, uh, you know, 72% of the people in a recent survey, I think it was a Pew Research survey who are not online said that they just don't see it as relevant to their lives. Well, it's incumbent upon all of us to help people understand in fact, that it is relevant to their lives. It can make a difference. It can improve their health come outcomes. It can help improve their educational outcomes and prepare them and their children better for school um, on a day-to-day basis, whether they're uh, at home because they're ill or they have sickle cell disease or something else that is happening at a particular time that makes it difficult for children to be in school. So we have to keep committed and we have to tell stories like this one. I want to share the story with you of a, you know, I get to, to meet so many people, wonderful people across the country who are examples of 
what a difference it makes. I recently met a woman uh, who lives here in the DMV. Her first name is LaJoy. And LaJoy has a 10-year-old daughter named LaBria. And LaBria has chronic health issues. LaJoy signed up for uh, Comcast Internet Essentials, which has been a $9.95 a month product for 10 years, by the way, as we've also increased speeds. As a result of the American Connectivity Program, by the way, that can be actually with a voucher that can be a free service, again, for tens of millions of people. But uh, LaJoy signed up for Internet Essentials some time ago, and it allowed her and her daughter, again, who has chronic health issues, to stay connected to school and to stay connected to uh, her daughter's uh, uh, doctors. The mother, LaJoy, works full-time, and uh, it's just phenomenal. She is in a PhD program herself. So telehealth appointments also save her time, and they fit into her schedule much better. LaJoy and LaBria have fully embraced telehealth. It has not only helped with her, with the mom staying connected, but again, it has helped so much with LaBria in terms of her education and her doctors. Again, that's just phenomenal when you think about it, that those two, because of the connection to the internet, are able to uh, improve both their education and, and also healthcare. So I remain very optimistic that as we go forward, if we stay committed with the resources and if we continue to empower people to believe that their own lives can be made better by being online, that we can solve this and we can close this digital divide and we can bring tremendous benefits across the country, again, without regard to race, gender, economic status. Communities have struggled to have sufficient access to broadband, and this has led to disparities. But the good thing is, there are a lot of strategies to approach this issue, strategies that include equity at the center of the process. And there are a lot of stakeholders on the ground working to improve this issue. So as we end this episode, I want to ask, what is your role? Who can you collaborate with to expand broadband access to all communities, especially the most underserved? What entrepreneurs in this space should receive investment? It takes all of us. We can all play a role. Thank you for listening to this episode of 21st Century Health. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great podcasts.